1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balteran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Reni Thomas, who is Assistant Professor uh, at the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Indian Institute of Science, Education and Research in Madhya Pradesh. He's also a visiting fellow um, uh, in the Department of Cultural Anthropology and Cultural History at Friedrich Schiller University, Jena, Germany. Reni, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Swaz. It's absolutely great to be here. So, we're talking about a book that uh, that Rennie's just published uh, as part of the Rutledge Science and Religion series. So, no doubt, this podcast will be posted to a number of relevant channels. The book, of course, is called "Science and Religion in India: Beyond Disenchantment," uh, an intriguing, perhaps even provocative title. Tell us about the backstory. How did you? How did? You, how did you end up? pursuing this line of research?
0: Yeah, great question. You see, as, as you mentioned, you know, I'm essentially trained as an anthropologist. So there's the interest in science television came, you know, while visiting some laboratory and scientific institutions in India. And when I was about to really propose my PhD work, I thought this is this is going to be a fascinating work. And that's how actually uh, my interest began and entered actually studying uh, some of the laboratories. So I did my fieldwork in Bangalore, actually at uh, you know some of the uh, leading scientific institutions. I was interested in understanding, actually, as an anthropologist and as an ethnographer, how scientists actually deal with their everyday religious lives, uh, beyond you know uh, their domestic spheres. You know, I was more interested in actually the existence of religion rituals uh, in the laboratories and uh, scientific institutions for a particular reason because. When we study religion you know we don't really look at scientific laboratories to study religion so i wanted to understand you know whether it is actually whether it is possible to really look at non sites of religion uh, to understand religion so non-science such as not sites such as uh, scientific laboratories you know
1: hospitals etc in my case it's the scientific laboratory that's how it began Hmm. Would you say uh, to, to perhaps crudely generalize, which is uh, perfectly acceptable on podcasts, maybe not so much in in journal articles, but um, uh, <laughs> would you say that the relationship between what we think of as, as what we how we consider science and religion would you say it's it's um, it's quite different in the Indian context?
0: Yeah, it's quite different actually in the Indian context. There is no doubt about it. Of course, also precisely because of the fact that the diversity of religions. Yeah. Uh, you know, the belief system that we have in India, right? So it's clearly different from the way the Abrahamic religions deal with science. Uh, so that's, that really makes India a very uh, complicated case to look at actually science and religion. That's why I call it actually, if you want to understand science and religion in India, we need to go beyond both the categories of uh, conflict and complementarity. Actually, both these categories are very, you know, it's, these are very limiting categories actually to understand the everyday a life of science and religion in the Indian, Indian context. So, on the one hand, I would like to go with, uh, you know, the fact that uh, science and religion, they have very different lives in India, both for historical and sociological reasons, but also I don't want to make it very, you know, as an essentialized idea that it is very, completely unique in India, so that can also be dangerous. But I think uh, there is no doubt that actually the situation is quite different for
1: historical and sociological reasons uh, in India, yes. You know, time and time again, both uh, in my particular niche as a scholar of Sanskrit narrative, but more importantly in this context as a as a, as a host uh, who has the extraordinary privilege of, of 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 really having a glimpse into scores and scores and now hundreds of, of studies. Uh, time and time again, we see that really uh, it's both and. It's, it's either or is always, it, it's, it's hazardous in many situations, but it seems like as soon as you enter South Asia, the either or thing just really <laughs> falls apart quite easily. And the both and mode is, a, uh, is, a, is something, there's something in the air or the soil, but um, uh, so without putting words in your mouth, it doesn't seem that science and religion are as mutually exclusive or as problematic or as much of a tension within uh, the scientific community in, in India would you say? Yeah, absolutely, exactly. I mean, that's not really uh,
0: you know, following my field book, for sure. Uh, but there are different narratives that I discuss in the book, actually. So you have, of course, a group of scientists who would argue that there isn't a conflict, actually, between science and religion, and they give reasons for that. But then you also have, you know, scientists who disagree with that. But what is interesting is how they disagree is very different from their counterparts in the you know, North American universities or Western university for sure. It's not uh, a binary rejection of say, you know, we are scientists, therefore, uh, you know, uh, we cannot be religious. But there are other reasons for that actually, and that that's where the, I think they try to bring in the question of culture. For example, I have a whole chapter on atheist scientists actually. So even the atheist scientists actually practice atheism very differently in the Indian context. So they they don't really want to, for example. Take Richard Dawkins as the model, but there are other models for the matter. They would sometimes go back to the ancient Indian texts to refer to the school of rationalism and things like that. So it's interesting how they really, you know, construct their identities very differently uh, beyond these binaries. And that's why I think an ethnography of you know science and religion becomes very significant because, as you all just mentioned, you know, so if you look at historical texts for that matter uh it's always about okay whether whether they are in conflict or you know there's a good relationship but when we really look at the field that's not how it is actually so i think that's where i think anthropological studies uh, become significant to make sense of the everyday life of of these concepts
1: what is it that you overall argue otherwise put what is the perhaps most hopeful takeaway or takeaways from from the book as a whole
0: uh, okay, great. So, in the book is actually, as I say, no, it, the book is basically about the way in which one can make sense. of uh, anthropologically, the relationship between science and religion, it it has, of course, you know, uh, various meanings. Uh, but essentially, it is arguing that we need to really, you know, look at the category, the life of science and the life of religion uh, in a more, uh, uh, you know, detailed manner. One has to engage with these categories and uh, how they really work together in scientific institutions, and it is also methodological, as I have started by saying that it is significant to look at actually the non sites of uh, you know religion to really study religious life. So, therefore, laboratory becomes an important category. So, I'm trying to really bring in uh, theoretical and methodological questions from uh, STS, science and technology studies, and sociology of religion, for that matter. So uh, on the one hand, I think the book is arguing that it's important to look at the specificity of, you know, the science and religion life in India. But on the other hand, I'm also trying to argue how there can be a danger of really essentializing science and religion in India, as we know that this, this can actually lead to, you know, various questions around cultural nationalism and things like that. So, and also like I have a separate chapter on um, or just a separate to chapter tool. Cast in 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 Indian scientific institutions. So when we think about actually science and religion in India, I think it is extremely important that we also talk about questions around caste in scientific institutions,
1: uh, which I try to do uh, in in the book. Yeah. So as you mentioned a bit earlier, how does one go beyond the binaries of conflict and complementarity?
0: Yeah, that's a very tricky question, actually. So where I try to basically use some, you know, theoretical ideas from in, in my work, I was trying to actually use uh, Brunan Abdul's work on modes of existence, where he tries to argue that, you know, uh, you know, there are different modes of existence. So religion is completely different from actually science, one need to really compare and contrast actually both how their own life. I was trying to really use that to understand the case of India to see that, you know, so this is also this came from my conversation with scientists. In fact, they would argue that, you know, we don't really want to compare and contrast actually science and religion. This is a completely different. So therefore, one need not to really argue that actually that they are always together, science and religion work in or work, or they are they are they coexist. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, we also don't need to say that they are always in in you know fight, they're fighting all the time, right? So if we consider these as different categories, it's completely fine, actually, because that is how uh, the scientists kind of told me during the interviews that, you know, for us, uh, religion is different from science. But then the question comes in, what happens when you see the presence of religion in scientific institutions, right? So in the laboratories, for example, how do we make sense of, for example, larger questions of secular spaces? In the Indian context, for sure, uh, you know, these are public funded institutions and these are secular institutions, how do we make sense of the presence of religion uh, in the secular institutions? So, uh, yeah, I, therefore, I think it is very important that we need to uh, go beyond the, the binary, you know, both conflict and complementarity, but also try to see, uh, you know, what is really, uh, what is really seen as religion, what is really seen as, for example, culture, et cetera, uh, in the Indian the Indian setting actually.
1: Could you perhaps uh, provide uh, an example or a couple of examples for listeners who may not be as familiar with what are some examples of religiosity in scientific institutional settings?
0: Yeah, so I'm oh, yeah, absolutely. So you know so if you if, if you if you look at any scientific institutions in India uh, you'll find the presence of religious rituals and religious rituals uh, from you know one particular religion, and for various historical and sociological reasons actually they are histo- they are statistically and uh, culturally numerous actually they are major they are the majority in uh, population in the scientific institutions and for that reasons you have celebrations so you know all the rituals all so the celebration all the festivals like such as diwali you know holi adinesh chatdi puja etc which i discuss actually in detail in the book for example the kind of acceptance uh, you know, these rituals actually you have in scientific institutions, right? So, clearly these uh, rituals are performed, these, you know, festivals are celebrated in, in- institutions, and uh, uh, I was, uh, you know, intrigued, that I, was, I was very uh, interested in knowing how people who are not from actually these religions or this belief system would respond to, uh, you know, uh, these practices right so if you look at my chapter on actually caste I, I speak to many you know Dalit students and uh, researchers and they have very different uh, things to say you know they would argue that actually we have our own uh, cultural systems and belief system but we are we don't really celebrate those in the institutions and i think now it's changing because many institutions including iits have you know ambedkar Tanya, Pune study group they try to you know, intervene in these matters of culture. So, I, I was actually interested in understanding what is really considered as culture. So, in a way, my work is an ethnography of culture and cultural because we often use this categories so, of you know, uh, this is culture and this is cultural and how does it actually work in Indian scientific institutions is what I was trying to make sense of. So, these rituals can be basically an example of, you know, Forms of religiosity of those institutions, right?
1: Would we, uh, how do I frame this without it being a leading question? Um, uh, can we disambiguate culture from religious?
0: Yeah, I think that's a key uh, question that I was trying to really address in the book is that, you know, uh, can we make a distinction between cultural and religious? And this is exactly what, you know, many of my, uh, you know, scientists, uh, also, they they made a distinction between cultural and religious. Now, for example, you know when you think about certain festivals and rituals, I'll I'll give you an example that I discuss in the book, like you know Ganesh Chaturthi, uh, Diwali, and Holi. These uh, festivals were actually uh, by 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 the scientists, but then they make a distinction between actually. Uh, these forms as cultural, and then you also have other systems, such for example, Eid was perceived as religious. So there's a very interesting kind of distinction that they make between cultural and religious in the institution. So therefore, it's okay to really have cultural festivals in science institutions. You know, so what happens is actually the translation of religious into cultural actually gets certain kind of acceptance, social acceptance, actually in the institution. Point of time, it loses
1: its actually uh, religious identity, so it becomes cultural in that sense. Uh During your interviews or writing process, what surprised you?
0: Uh, really, nothing really surprised actually, because I've been reading texts uh, on this matter. But I think what is surprising was, of course, not again not surprising, but uh, kind of shocking was actually the the larger discussion of actually, right? So. Uh, you you see in the chapter, it's one of the detailed chapters in the book where I discuss how, for example, the way in which the idea of marriage, the idea of passion was, uh, you know, ahistorically uh, you know, like as if there is something about marriage, as if there is something about passion, without really looking at the histories of the background that need to come from, uh, which is in many ways actually in continuation with what Ajanta Subramanian has done in her book on actually IIT Madras. Why in the subtitle Beyond Disenchantment? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, various reasons actually, uh, of course, uh, first of all, uh, for a you know, publisher's point of view. Uh, second is actually, I thought disen- disenchantment is a very interesting category that we discuss all the time in sociology. And I really wanted to understand the everyday life of disenchantment, uh, looking at actually the case of India. So very clearly there isn't any disenchantment actually uh, so it's kind of a you know the you know the American historian of religion Jason Josephson talk, in his very interesting book called The Myth of Disenchantment looks at actually the genealogy of disenchantment, how it is actually not something that happens, etc. Right. So I wanted to understand in the Indian context how the idea or or the concept of disenchantment actually works. It doesn't really work. I mean, uh, you know, so if if one has to go with disenchantment, actually science actually is going to be uh, or, or science is going to decide the world, and you know. So, but that's not how it really works among scientists, right? So, their images, they are they still live with their, the background of caste, uh, and, you know, uh, and and also these backgrounds actually shape the way uh, they do their science. Sometimes, sometimes it also shapes the way the kind of places they want to be, and it's also interesting actually. Uh, if you look at uh, the way in which they would like to be part of these cultural groups, uh, for example, even the atheist scientists that I that I, I spoke to and I document in the book, that they're atheists and they don't really believe in any god, would still would like to really be part of the cultural, uh, you know, uh, system that they belong to. And how does it work? It works, of course, through marriage marrying from one's own caste, actually, in that's instead. Right? So, I think, like, what I was trying to do by putting this category of disenchantment is to really understand, first, the social life of the concept of disenchantment in Indian context, and on the other hand, also to problematize, actually, uh, the idea of disenchantment as a you know, a historical category in that sense in Indian context.
1: You mentioned your, your chapters, I believe the final chapters on um, um caste and um and atheism. Walk us through the structure of the book. How's the book structured?
0: Yeah. Uh the uh the first chapter is actually uh based on my archival work. It's a historical chapter where I'm trying to really look at how the category of science and religion worked during you know, the post-independent India, I'm looking at actually the various conversation uh, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, the first prime minister of India, uh, had on, you know, various systems of knowledge, especially Ayurveda, and what was his take on Ayurveda and how he was trying to really look at actually Ayurveda through the language of science and scientific method. And I was, because he was creating actually the distinction of science and metaphysics. And actually, it's very interesting that he, he argues that, you know, of, of course, as you know very clearly that he didn't really support, uh, you know, many of this knowledge system because he thought that these are unscientific and metaphysical systems, actually. So, for example, uh, you know, he, when, during his uh, response to various uh, fellow members of Constantine Assembly, like I was looking at the Constantine Assembly des- debates, uh, he completely, uh, you know, disagreed uh, with the fact that he should really support actually institutionalizing you know, for example, systems such as Ayurveda, because he thought that this was, uh, Ayurveda was actually lacking scientificity and, and it doesn't really follow scientific method. In fact, in one response to uh, one of the fellow members, he said that the state is willing to support uh, any systems of knowledge if they follow scientific method. And unless they follow scientific method, the state is not in a position to really support. So uh, support side, you know, systems such as Ayurveda. So I was trying to really look at in that chapter how the idea of science and religion boxed through these debates. So which is historical, and then the next two chapters are actually based on my field or trying to look at actually the different forms of religious life, rituals, uh, you know, festivals, etc. That happens within the scientific institutions. Then the uh, A, you, know, uh, you know, the. Theaters and their everyday life, how they deal with the question of science, religion, culture, etc. In the last chapter is to really look at how uh, and the life of social life, of social, political life of caste in the institution that I have studied, but also incorporating examples from actually other scientific institutions. And then I'm trying to argue towards the end that actually the study of science and religion in India uh, should now you know, uh, go beyond actually science and Hinduism uh, because we don't really have, for example, interesting. There are of course uh, interesting works, but I think we need to have more works on when we use the word science and religion in India. We also need to have, you know, uh, Sikhism, Jainism, Islam, Christianity, you know, and 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 various Adivasi belief systems and the way in which, for example, they would really deal with questions of religion. Mm-hmm. The... Yes. Uh, which is how I end the book. It's actually fascinating.
1: Who would you say the book is for? Uh, the focus audience, you meant? Yeah, who's it for? I mean, I mean, I mean that in a general sense, interpret it as you will. But who who might most benefit from reading the book? What subfields or what what interests might it implicate?
0: Yeah, the uh, you know uh, academic audience. But what is surprising is actually. Uh, the book was reviewed in very, you know, uh, uh, many actually uh, larger sites such as the wire, etc. So uh, so in, even though the book was actually meant for academic audience, anthropologists, historians, science, religious studies, scholars, but uh, it really got attention from larger audience. So I think like, yeah, I mean, it, yes, I think both academic and non-academic. And, uh, and I must say that, the Indian edition of the book was released just a couple of months ago, which is very helpful because uh, the earlier version was quite costly and it's a London edition. So now it's available in all the bookshops in India, which I am quite happy about because now but, my former students
1: would also get the book and say that I'm reading it, which is very happy. Yeah, that's that's lovely. I, I can certainly relate. I mean, Relich is a fine press without question, but it's obviously a um, um, academic and and be expensive, right? And so, so my two monographs are from published with Routledge, and, um, uh, t- 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 I, I teased once in a while that, you know, I'm not sure I can afford to buy my own books, but, I, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but, th- but I have a third book out, it's a public book. It's called the stories behind the poses and, and it, very similar, book. I was delighted actually that Bloomsbury, India picked it up, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh couple to think of it. There was. And if you can believe it, we happen to be recording today on International Yoga Day uh, slash the 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 uh, summer solstice, uh, the longest day of the year in the northern hemisphere. Um, and uh, the, if you can believe it, Times of India interviewed me about the stories behind the poses, and it was released just today. And I'm thinking, since when? <laughs> since when do you have academics <laughs> being over? But but having said that that bridging is precisely uh one of the key elements of my own mission in the podcast and that's why we that's why it seems that it's a great fit because wh- what do we do with the podcast we're bridging the, the public uh, sort of academic divide initially i mean the podcast is pitched to the interested generalist or or, or really a, a lifelong learner or just a member of the public and i was surprised over the years to learn that so many of our specialists called I think to myself why on earth are they, are they listening to this podcast? I ask questions like, so, who's Gandhi? So, you know, what's... What? And, so, and I thought to myself, well, well what other podcasts would they, they listen to? They listen to this podcast. Um, but no, it's it's wonderful to see the... It's, the bridging is wonderful, is my, my point. The bridging is great. Happy to see that for your book.
0: Yeah, no, I'm very happy about your, you know, forthcoming book, actually, Bloomsbury India. So basically, uh, you know, currently I'm actually... Uh, Co editing a book for them actually, so which is called Decolonial with Keywords South Asian Attitudes and Experiences. I'm doing it with actually an, an anthropologist called Sasanga Pereira at the South Asian University. So, okay. some of the questions that we are raising there is actually in continuation what I'm doing here in the sense of like looking at the you know the life of uh, you know the de- life of decoloniality actually in the South Asian context now. So, of course, that's a completely different project, but I thought this Bloomsbury connection is fantastic. <laughs>
1: No, no, no. That's well. It, it's relevant in that you we organically preempted um, my my typically final question is, which is, "Oh, what are you working on now? What are you working on next?" So it's it's great to hear that you're working on such issues. Of course, you know, scholarship's important in any niche, but certain it seems that certain strands of scholarship tie much more closely into current events, current issues, hot button issues. You know. Um, uh, if, if I'm doing a a public talk, and you know, what I'm going to present it as, uh, you know, this is the narrative structure of the Devi Mahatmya as related to Mark and the Purana, or I'm going to say, hey, here are some ancient Indian myths on the sacred feminine. <laughs> right. So, it's exactly the same talk, <laughs> but 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 being able to sort of um being able to place it within a, a greater interest, I think, is often quite useful. Yeah. So um, you'll have to reappear on the podcast when that that work is out. Regarding this work, is there anything else about this publication that you wanted to share or touch on?
0: Uh, uh, Just that I'm very, you know, like uh, as an anthropologist, I'm excited about what's going to be the afterlife of this book in the sense that how people have, so different people have, you know, received it actually differently. For example, historians of science. So, So I was very, happy to see how historians of science have, you know, received it well, you know, so I'm not an anti-historian of science, as a trained historian of science, but uh, Robert Anderson has written a fantastic review of the books, uh, uh, you know, saying how important it is to look at texts like mine uh, for historians of science. So I'm actually happy about the fact that, uh, you know, so it's it's going to be almost a year now, and uh, the most important thing is Indianization is out, so... <laughs>
1: Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. For those listening, we have been speaking with Renny Thomas on science and religion in India. Brand new Rutledge publication as part of their uh, science and religion series. Uh, until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating how this thing called science and this thing called religion relate to one another. Bye for now.